Uh, I, love, I love sports, and I love that the Bible uses um, athletic or sports metaphors to describe and depict the Christian walk and the Christian life to different degrees and what's required of the Christian life. And one of my favorite sports is uh, cycling. I thought that would get a laugh too, to be honest with you. Um, I really enjoy cycling, and I enjoy watching cycling, and, and like most sports, if you don't understand them, if you don't understand what's happening in the sport, it's hard to really enjoy. But I love to watch cycling, especially what they call the Grand Tours. That's those crazy long races like the Tour de France that last for two or three weeks, and they got hundreds of guys involved in these races, and I really enjoy watching them because of the, the degree of perseverance and strength and just sheer grit and determination it takes to win something like that or even to finish something like that. Every year in these Grand Tour races, there are professional cyclists who do this for a living who abandon the race. They cannot finish. It's so grueling. It is a relentless assault on the body. And what's so fascinating in the strategy of the race, oftentimes what you see is every team, there's a, it's a team sport, believe it or not, but every team has a, an individual on that team who is, is looking to win the race, the overall standings. And about halfway through the race, a favorite or a race leader begins to emerge and, and he starts to kind of look like he's going to be the, the really tough one to beat, the one to take down. And so what you'll see is as the race goes on, they'll wait to some of the most strategic stages in the race, usually the mountain stages. And the teams will get ready on the most difficult stage and usually the most difficult part of the stage. And what will happen is one team that thinks they have a shot at taking down this rival, this one contender who's ahead of the rest, they begin to slowly assault and attack that rider by launching attack after attack after attack. And they rotate through their best riders. So one at a time, one rider goes. And then all of a sudden, that forces the, the rival from the other team to try and keep up. And then the, the moment he catches back up, another rider goes. And he's got to struggle to catch back up there. And then another, and it's just relentless, wave after wave. And the intent is to do one of two things. Either break that rider through this relentless assault and attack so that he begins to crack, it's the term they use, and he begins to fade back into the pack, into the mediocrity of the pack. And he slides away from contention and from victory. The other reality is usually it tests the strength of this rider, and every so often what happens is this rider who is being assaulted continues to respond with increasing degrees of resilience and power, and every move, he not only catches back up, but then he forces the other riders to have to keep up with him, and all of a sudden, at times, what you see is this, this one who's been attacked time after time after time begins to see the finish line, and he throws down an assault and attack on everyone who's been attacking him, and he just bolts for the line and ends up winning the stage in victory to demonstrate his superiority over the opposition. I believe that we see a similar phenomena taking place in Acts chapter 5 verses 17 through 42. And Luke begins to record wave after wave of attack and assault upon the church of Jesus Christ. And they're just being bombarded and barraged by opposition 
But what we see is so incredible, like that rider who presses on and is resilient and ends up winning the stage, so too the church. Listen, they are resilient and they fight. They will not fade. They will not crack. Instead, they will be victorious by the grace and power of God. The attacks on the church in the early days were relentless. So too are the attacks on the church today. They keep coming and they have been coming in successive waves, generation after generation, century after century, millennia after millennia. These relentless attacks are often tiring, they're often painful, but the victory belongs to the church who stands firm in the strength of his might and stands for Jesus Christ in his glory. And the church withstands these assaults of the enemy by responding rightly. And this is the crucial component and responsibility for the church. They must respond to the assaults the biblical way, the right way, both corporately and individually in our lives. As we are attacked relentlessly by the enemy, we must respond in a way that will demonstrate the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. The church in Acts has seen just waves of growth, and God is working in such powerful ways. I mean, they're growing with such speed and pace that Luke, while he began in Acts by recording the number of people getting regularly saved, he's just stopped that practice altogether, I believe, because the amount of people that are being brought into the church is so massive, it's happening so rapidly, there's no point in trying to track the numbers right now. This massive move of God, though, has brought upon the church increasing waves of opposition from the enemy. And last week we saw the greatest attack came from within the walls of the church by, Anani- by Satan excuse me, through two individuals named Ananias and Sapphira. God dealt seriously with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to present themselves as being these holy, uh, righteous, God-fearing, God-honoring Christians. But they were sham Christians, they were false Christians in one sense. At least they were deceiving other people, they were hypocrites trying to convince people that they were more righteous and godly than they truly were. And to prove a point, God struck them dead on the spot for lying to the Holy Spirit. A graphic display of God's power, but a more graphic display of the requirement for the church to be purged of sin, to deal with sin in a way that demonstrates the character of God, that God is serious about his holiness and he's serious about the church and the church cannot be effective where sin rules and reigns in the hearts of God's people. And so God rids the church of this particular sin and he strikes this healthy fear into the people of God And what we see happening is this, that the church continues after this to provoke fear in the hearts of unbelievers. And many of them are staying away saying, wow, this God is serious. What they believe in there is is real and God is doing something. And if you're not serious about this religion, if you kind of just want to walk in and treat it as if it's trivial, that could be a dangerous thing. And yet what we see too is that God is rallying people out of this fear, this healthy fear, understanding that this is the true and living God and he has power and might and authority and all of a sudden people start flooding to the church and it just continues to grow. It's this amazing, supernatural work of God. And yet what we see is that The opposition doesn't come just from within, it also comes from outside the walls of the church. There are enemies of the church, 
And that's what we see here. And we face these relentless attacks. Here's what we need to do as we face these attacks. We submit first to the supreme authority. We submit to the supreme authority. In Acts chapter 17, we pick up the story and it says this, excuse me, verse 517, it says, But the high priests rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public prison. The Sadducees were part of the uh, religious elite. They were one of the, the sects of the Jewish faith, uh, the ruling class, if you will. They were wealthy aristocrats. They had all the power, and they thought they had all of the authority. That's what you need to see happening here. They thought they were the ones through whom God was actually working. They thought they had a corner on the truth. And so to demonstrate their authority, we see here that they take the apostles and they put them in a public prison. Now, don't miss that word public. This is very different from the first time the apostles had been taken into their custody. The first time it was done kind of quietly. It was done kind of under the radar. It wasn't a public prison in which they were being held. But now the text wants to emphasize, listen, that they are being publicly shamed. They're being publicly put on display as not the authority, as the lesser authority, as under submission to the true authority. So why did they do this? Well, the text makes it very clear that among other reasons we know of, they were filled, the text tells us, with jealousy. So why, why are they filled with such jealousy? Well, remember that they despise the message that's already been proclaimed in Jesus Christ. We've looked a little bit at what the Sadducees actually believed, and theologically, we know this. They, they, first of all, they believed that Jesus was not the Messiah because they killed him. Secondly, they don't believe in a resurrection. They believe that that's kind of foolish and not biblical, and so they're angry that the, the apostles, the primary, the heart of the message they're preaching is the what? The resurrection. So they're, they're already frustrated with this group of apostles, but notice this, the key emphasis here is that they're filled with a jealousy. Their, their opposition was fueled by this destructive desire for authority. You say, well, why would they be this jealous? Why would they be this envious? Well, the movement, as we've already stated, has become incredibly popular and thereby populous. And when people, uh, especially the Jewish people, are beginning to embrace Christianity, guess what it means they're leaving? They're leaving these religious beliefs of the Sadducees behind, and all of a sudden it seems like there's a power struggle, an authority struggle, and to exercise their authority, they flex their political and their religious muscle, and they lock them up in a public prison. And this is where the story gets absolutely fascinating, you see, because God is intent on demonstrating to them that they are not the authority, that God is not working through them, they don't have a corner on the truth, in fact, they've missed the truth, that they're not in submission to the greatest authority of all, the supreme authority of God himself. And so to prove this point, look at what God does, picking up in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, I think you'd agree that this is a pretty unique occurrence, right? 
This kind of stuff doesn't happen all that often, not even in Scripture. There's only a few instances where there is some kind of a divine intervention like this, especially an angel coming and releasing uh, people from prison. Now, there's a bit of divine humor here, right? We've already talked about the theological distinction. Here's the apostles preaching the resurrection while the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Well, guess what else they didn't believe in? The existence of angels, (laughs) It's like God is just kind of just driving this point home. Like, don't you get it? You guys have missed the truth. You're wrong about a whole lot of stuff, but you're especially wrong about Jesus Christ. And you're wrong about the authority you think you possess. And you're wrong about what these men, who they're operating on behalf of, you've missed it entirely. God's making a statement. You say, well, why is an event like this recorded for us? God is making a profound statement to believers in Jesus Christ and also to oppressors of Jesus Christ that there is only one supreme authority. He rules. He has authority over every aspect of creation. There is not one uh, uh, atom in all of creation. There is not one particle in all of creation does not, that does not scream, God does not scream over mine. It's all owned by him. He created it, he has ownership, he has rights over it, and that's demonstrated through the fact that they can't even keep these people in prison overnight. Not even one night, if God so chooses to get them out, he can do so any way he wants, including sending an angel and releasing his children. Wow, what comfort there is, isn't there, for followers of Jesus Christ? To know that regardless of the situation you may find yourself in, it is not hopeless. How helpful is this and how soothing for our souls? Some of us, even in here, may be thinking that our, our worlds are spinning out of control and maybe the apostles are feeling the same way. Wow, we didn't, we didn't realize we were gonna get put in prison so quickly. We're seeing God move in such a powerful way, but now we're locked up. I mean, what's going on here? Is God really in control? Is God really in this part of my life? Maybe you think that this morning. And how come things aren't going the way I planned them or the way I was hoping or the way I thought they should go? And why am I here? And God is saying to you, don't you trust me? Don't you understand that if I want to get you out of here anytime I want, I can snap my fingers and I can remove any obstacle. Now let's be very clear. This is not a divine promise that God is going to send an angel to rescue you every time you're in trouble, okay? Sometimes God's answer is simply this, wait and trust. Wait and trust. What a powerful message, not only to believers, but to unbelievers. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting in here and and you're thinking in some sense that you have authority over your life. And you have a degree of control. And what God wants you to, to hear today is this. You are not the supreme ruler of the universe, not even your own universe. There are so many things outside of the realm of your control. And all of that points to one thing, that you are a creature that must be in submission to a sovereign creator. And if you are trying to run your life, you're actually finding yourself in rebellion against this creator because you were designed to know him and to love him and to surrender your life to his lordship, his kingship over your life. This is at the heart of the the Christian message. So God is making a statement here. And this practical reminder, this releasing from prison, I think is in one sense God affirming and reminding the apostles of what he had previously communicated to them through uh, the Great Commission. Do you remember that? It's such a, a, a significant moment in the lives of the apostles. Jesus looks at his, his 12 disciples at that time and he says to them, and here's the verse, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love the emphasis on the all in that passage, don't you? Nothing, nothing, nothing is outside of the realm of God's control. He is the supreme authority. And this is just a great reminder to remember that the mission of the church is not something that we design. We don't determine what our mission is as a church or as believers. This is something that God, because of his divine supreme authority, gives to the disciples and by extension is passed off to us, the church. And so the the mission statement of our church is rooted in this text right here, and it's rooted there because we believe that God is the supreme sovereign authority over the universe. Amen? And so the way we phrase this and we break this down is we say that we want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. And here's what you need to know. The primary emphasis of this great commission is to the glory of God, and the primary way that happens is by making disciples. Seeing them saved, then seeing them growing and maturing, and seeing them turn around and go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. God is coming to seek and save the lost, and you know, discipleship is the heartbeat of the Great Commission in one sense, and it should be the heartbeat of the church of Jesus Christ, and you just need to know this. If, maybe if you're new to this church, everything we do here revolves around this calling, this mission. We are here to make disciples. And we want to see people saved. We want to see them growing in Christ Jesus. And making disciples happens in a a variety of different ways. But listen, it is not removed from any ministry in this church. Everywhere you go in this church, the primary emphasis is make disciples. It happens a variety of different ways, a variety of different times, to varying levels and varying degrees. But I'm telling you right now, every ministry, the purpose, the heartbeat is make disciples of Jesus Christ. And you, you walk down into our children's ministry and you want to know what the purpose of the children's ministry is? Make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we believe that's our divine calling and God is the supreme authority. He's given us that calling and we are going to follow him and obey him. And so you know, we don't view, one of the, the primary emphasis of our children's ministry is that we don't view this as a glorified babysitting time. We view this as a precious opportunity that God has given us to make spiritual investments into the lives of these children. And we pray, we pray every morning, we pray every week that God would use the teachers and the, and the, the helpers, I mean, and, and that God would soften the hearts of the kids so that their hearts can be opened to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, we long, don't you long for that? I mean, how many of you have young kids in here? Put your hand up. I mean, that's like 99% probably. Like we long for God, don't we, to just work in these young lives to break them and to show them Christ. I mean, that, that is my prayer for my own kids, that God would move in such a way so that they would see the beauty, the reality, the truth, the majesty of Jesus Christ, and that they would surrender their lives to him at a young age and follow him with all of their heart. And that's the heartbeat of what we do in this church. And this gives me a great opportunity just to kind of pull over and jump on a a soapbox for a minute, so please humor me for a minute. Um, But, you know, I I just think you need to be encouraged with this. Like, God just continues to bless our church with growth, particularly in the area of children. I mean, you are faithful to be fruitful and multiply. Congratulations. This is exciting. We're thankful for that. Um, But but here's here's what we've run into. we have a lot of people faith, and if you serve in the children's ministry, can I just, can I just say just a special, I know the investment you make, I know the, the heart for these kids that you have, I know how hard it can be, 
Um, and I'm just thankful for that. I'm thankful for everybody who serves in every ministry, but I think, listen, that is hard work down there, okay? That is hard work. And, and can I just encourage you, one of the problems we're running into is this. We have a too few hands doing the work of the ministry there. And, and there's a lot of people who are, listen, they're kind of burning the candle at both ends, and they're running out of steam, and, and we don't want to see that, right? That's not a loving thing. We're not serving one another if we just let a few people do the majority of the work. There are people who are missing both services sometimes every week because they have to step in and fill the gap because there's just not enough hands there. And so can I, this is just a passionate plea from my heart to yours because I love you and I love your kids and I love the people who are just serving so faithfully. Listen, we need people to step up and serve in the children's ministry, okay? How's that for a segue into the... I was like, how am I going to get this? I've got to talk to the church about this. How can I fit it in? Here it is. We need you to step up and serve. And so especially, can I just really challenge you? Especially if you have young kids. And I would just ask you to consider serving. Even if we get enough people, listen, if we get enough people in there, then that means that maybe you only have to serve once a month, but that just frees everybody up and spreads the work of the ministry onto a lot of different people. And everybody wins in this. Everybody wins because people are freed up to come in and enjoy the service and be fed. You're freed to go and serve people in maybe a new way, an exciting way. Some of you are like, well, I just really need to pray about this. Um, no. Okay? You're like, well, I just need to see how God, no, no, you need to just obey, okay? God is calling you just to serve, commit, and go and do it. There's not a lot of prayer required in these kind of things sometimes, okay? Just go and sign up, all right? We're done? We're good? All right. All right, we're back at it now, okay? Let's get back to the text. Thank you. Thank you for letting me do that. And uh, again, just grateful for how God is at work in uh, providing so many, so many kids. It's, it's, it's really sweet. <laughs> All right, where were we? Uh, the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. He is our supreme authority and we obey him. And here they're, they're divinely delivered, notice this, they're divinely delivered to continue the divine commission and, and to continue on their divine mission. And the language here is suggesting kind of a dogged perseverance, a continual steadfastness. The church, in other words, will not be stopped. It will not be thwarted. The opposition will not crack the true church of God. It's interesting, this, the way the gospel is phrased here, isn't this fascinating? He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I mean, that's, that's one amazing way just to think about the gospel right now. So why is it phrased like this? And some of your Bibles have it, you know, a capital L there. That's because it's not referring to just the ways of life, as if you're just talking to people about life in general. It's intending to tell people that this is the life, true life, genuine life, eternal life, the life that is given only by the grace and love of God in Christ Jesus. And this is such a helpful reminder, isn't it? I mean, just think about what that ought to provoke in our hearts. There's, there's a world around us, the Bible says, who is dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking, sin destroys a relationship with God. It produces death spiritually. And it leads to punishment and judgment from God because we live in that spiritual death and we rebel against God. He is not our king, we are our king. 
And, and this reminder that what we have is so precious. Listen, Christians, we have, we have life in Jesus Christ. We have the only message. You know, you know that video from David Platt where he talks about, you know, is it intolerant? Is it narrow-minded? Is it wrong? Is it prideful to be able to go to people and say, look, what you believe is wrong, and this is right. And if you continue to believe what's wrong, then you're going to actually end up separated from God for all of eternity and go to hell and pay for your own sins. Is it wrong to go and tell people that this is life? No, it is the most loving, gracious, compassionate thing we can do. Just think about it just practically. Can you imagine you're walking down the street and all of a sudden somebody drops dead right beside you and you just kind of look at them and then you just start, well, well, I guess that's too bad, tough day. Just keep going. I hope somebody stops to help. How crazy would that be? We'd look at that and go like, that's, that's ridiculous. Somebody help that person. And yet, listen, listen, Christians, we walk around every day and what we know is this. The Bible says this. People are spiritually dead. Everywhere we go, people are spiritually dead. They're alienated from God. And they're, listen, they're, they're gonna die and spend eternity separated from him. And here we are walking around with the knowledge of life, with the precious gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we walk by going, well, I hope somebody helps you out sometime. When we should be rushing to people, we should be urgently running to people and strapping on the defibrillator of the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying there is hope in Christ, you can have life. And all these people trying to search for life in all the wrong places, listen, drugs, sex, alcohol, money, possessions, earthly things, when all it brings is emptiness and death and Christ offers life in abundance. I mean, do you remember, do you remember when, when all of, the, you know, Jesus is preaching in John chapter six and He's saying some hard things, and all of a sudden, he says some things that conflict with people's you know, desires. And, and they begin to turn their back. These so-called followers, these disciples of Jesus, f- turn their back, and they begin to walk away. And Jesus looks at his 12, and, and he says to them, he says, do you too want to leave me? I love this. I love the consistency of the Bible. Peter, Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way. What a powerful, powerful reminder that we bring life, we offer life. And here, we see that the disciples took this charge seriously, don't we? Look at verse 21. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Why, why at daybreak? Why, why, why at this time? You've got to see this. God is making a very public statement, okay? They were put in public prison to prove a point that the supreme authorities are with the religious leaders. And here God calls them uh, to go at daybreak, the busiest time, the most people flooding in for the morning sacrifices, the most public place at the most public time to make a statement that God is the supreme authority. Gotta love the beauty of scripture. So, they're commanded to go to this public place and they begin to proclaim the good news and says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent them to the prison to have them brought. Again, think about this. This, this word brought is used so often here. It's as if they're in charge, right? When you have somebody brought to you, you're the authority. 
And so here they are. They don't even understand what's happening. They're like, go and, go and get those guys we locked up. Let's show them who's boss. Huh? So they go wandering off and they go to get them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Yeah, I bet. They'd be scratching my head. I mean, this is a secure location. How in the world did they get past a locked gate with guards? Then another gate, probably. Wondering what this would come to. I'd be pretty scared. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put, you just catch the irony here, who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but listen now, look how the tone changes here, but not by force. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You see, they're not the authority. They're not the true authority. They're not the supreme authority. God is. And right now, this is helpful for us to understand. Listen, God's authority and the authority to grant life to the dead resides in the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, when we face opposition, when we face these relentless waves of opposition, listen, first, we submit to the supreme authority, but secondly, we speak with true courage. Uh, You've got to believe that right now, this has kind of amped them up a little bit. I mean, they're, they're reminded that God is the supreme authority. They're reminded that not even a prison can hold them if God so chooses to snap his fingers, send an angel, and get them out. And so look what happens in verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, again, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're arrested, uh, they're released by God, they're re-arrested, carefully brought back to the authorities. And I can imagine, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine the tone now is kind of, I'm sure they're still slightly annoyed, but I think maybe the way they're addressing the apostles may be a little bit different. Like, hey, didn't we tell you not to do this? What are you doing? And then you can see Peter's like, yeah, didn't we tell you we're not going to listen to you? We already had this discussion back in chapter 4, remember? Like, look at the footnotes. Somebody not take minutes of this meeting? We told you. We don't submit to you. We submit to God. We asked you the question. You tell us. Who is it better to submit to, you or God? And here they are. We, we cannot not speak about this Jesus. Don't you get it? We will not be stopped. We cannot be stopped. We must not be silent. We will shout it from the rooftops. We don't care what you do to us. Can you just see how passionate they are about the truth of Jesus Christ? How courageous they are? They're filling Jerusalem with the teaching. Can you Again, the emphasis is just, they just can't, everywhere they go, hey, have you heard about Jesus yet? Can I tell you about the resurrection? I mean, did you know that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God wants to give you life? Can you believe that you can be forgiven and restored back to God? Isn't that awesome news? I mean, just all of Jerusalem is beginning to be filled with this teaching, and these religious leaders don't know what to do with it. Now they're probably terrified. What's happening here? 
And Peter takes this opportunity to give a mini sermon. I love it. But you just can't stop Peter from preaching. And, and this is so instructive because here's what we don't see. We don't see them justifying themselves. We don't see them angered by the mistreatment and injustice. We see only a desire to exalt Jesus Christ. All they want to do is promote Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins and he says, Peter and the apostles, so all of them together. I, I think this is probably a condensed version, by the way, of the discussion that must have happened. But he hits for us these, the main components of the gospel. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus Christ, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. I love that the, the Sadducees are afraid that, that they're kind of painting, that the apostles are painting them in a bad light and they're, you know, they're trying to make, uh, you're trying to make us responsible for this man's blood. And Peter, I love this, true biblical and gospel preaching doesn't let people off the hook for their sin. It goes right at it. And, and listen, here's why. Because you don't know you need to be saved until you realize what you need to be saved from. Every one of us has lives of sin, don't we? Every one of us has lived in a way that we know deep down inside is not honoring to God. We've lived in a way to please self, to serve self, to glorify self. We've worshipped ourselves as God, and we have not given God what is worthy of his name. We haven't given him us and our lives and our attention, our affection, our humility and submission. But what I love here is this, well, well Peter wants to make sure that you're responsible, you have rebelled, and, and you actually nailed the Sadducees. They nailed him to the tree, but listen, we have a part in that, don't we? Our sin, our sin, he, he was placed on him. He bore it all goes right to the reality of what God offers, you can be forgiven too. I think this is the emphasis of what he's saying. Like this, this man came to die in your place so that you didn't have to be punished. Instead, God raised him up to show that death doesn't have to be the end for you, that judgment doesn't have to be your reality. Instead, you can look to Jesus and he can take all of the punishment for your sin. He can take all of the judgment of God and instead he can give you the life that he earned, that perfect righteous life can be all yours if you repent. If you turn your back on your sin and you embrace Jesus Christ, not earning it, not giving anything for it, embracing the free gift of repent, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, God graciously grants, listen, a clean slate. So sweet. Peter wants to only exalt Jesus Christ. I remember... When I was in seminary, I, I, I went to seminary in California, and the president of the seminary was John MacArthur, and uh, he's a famous a Bible preacher. And I remember when he came to a chapel one day, and he'd, he'd often come in and either preach or do a question and answer period with some of us seminary students, and he had just recently been on CNN, or excuse me, it was Larry King Live, uh, specifically, and he, he'd often get calls as a religious leader, as a religious uh, figure, to come and comment on current world events from a Christian perspective, on a biblical perspective. And so somebody just asked him about that. You know, you've done, you've done this so many times, and, and you know, just, I mean, it's, it's amazing just to watch you handle yourself. Is, is there anything that you're thinking about while you're doing this? And his response was this, I have two objectives. Every time I get asked to do something like this, first, I never turn it down, and I have two objectives. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter what they want me to say. I always establish first the authority of God's word and second, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
No concern in one sense for anything else, but making sure people understand that God has spoken and the only hope you have is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has just so stuck with me, the desire to exalt Christ, not self. And they are fearless here and they speak with true courage and they don't kind of whitewash the situation and trying to lift the burden of sin and say your sin's not that bad. Instead, they make it worse. They say, no, don't you understand what you've done because they want Jesus to lift the burden of sin. It reminds me of the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, the companions of Daniel. Here's what they said when they stood before Nebuchadnezzar who was telling them that they must bow down to this false god. They said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not bow down. We will not compromise. We will not capitulate or crack. How is this kind of courage possible for followers of Jesus Christ? The sermon that Peter gives is bracketed by one word, I think, that should jump off the page. Look at verse 29. Notice what he says. He says, we must obey God rather than man. And in verse 32, he says, and, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Don't miss the significance of this. Obedience is the primary way God empowers boldness and courage. John Stott says it like this, God's people are under obligation to obey him, and if they do so, even though they may suffer when they have to disobey human authorities, they will be richly rewarded by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is profound. Listen, the witnessing power of the Holy Spirit is released in your life through obedience. So often what we do is this, we pray that God would give us his spirit to obey when God's saying, if you step out in faith and obey, my spirit will come along and give you everything you need. Really big difference. And specifically in the area of evangelism, right? How many of us feel so inadequate to go out and evangelize and to share the gospel with somebody we love? How many of us are fearful that we won't have the right words and, and you know, we won't communicate it effectively? And God is saying this, listen, he's saying, don't worry about all that. Just be faithful and do what I've called you to do and trust that my power will come alongside and make your witness bold and clear. There's a helpful, listen, principle here. We are called to participate with God in the work of the ministry. The gospel goes forth through our obedience. That's our part. Our part is to be faithful, to declare, and to be a witness to the truth of who Jesus is. Our part is not to change people's hearts, amen? That's God's part. But God calls us to play our part. Don't miss it. Who's God calling you to play that part in today? Who's that person right now? Who's that person that God is just laying on your heart that you know? Maybe somebody in your own home. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Who is it that God is saying, I want you to play your part. I want you to witness to me. I want you to tell them that they can have life in me. I want you to go for it. Step out in faith and believe. Believe that my power will be sufficient in your weakness. We must speak with true courage. That's our responsibility. 
but the results are in God's hands, and so we do our part, and then here's what we do next. Thirdly, listen, we surrender to the real power. And the real power is that God, by his spirit, will begin to work in the hearts of people who hear the truth of Jesus Christ. We leave the results up to God. That's his part in this. He does not lay that burden of changing hearts upon you and me. Praise God. And we surrender to the real power, and we begin to see in this next section that God is beginning to work. And don't don't miss that that's what's happening here. God is protecting the church by powerfully intervening to spare these apostles. Because you'll notice here that the reaction in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I mean, you've got to picture the scene. These men are offended. They're angered. I mean, they're just appalled at what they're hearing, and they're gnashing their teeth. I mean, there's vicious hostility against the apostles that are forming here. They're foaming at the mouth. And the conversation is like, why don't we just kill them now? What's to stop us? I mean, come on, somebody pick up a stone. And by the way, why didn't they just do that? They could have. And by the way, they could have gotten away with it. God steps in. And he does so through an unbeliever, oddly enough. And again, I don't know what's going on in in this man's heart, but listen to what it says. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Gamaliel was really a a popular and probably the most prestigious Pharisee, a rabbi, teacher in the nation of Israel at this time. It's, It's amazing to me that God chooses to use the one person who probably had the greatest amount of respect and credibility with all the rest of the Sanhedrin. Like, if there's anybody that they're going to all listen to, it's this guy right here. And here he is. He stands up in the crowd, and he says, let's hold on a second here, guys. Let's think about what we're doing. They found an unexpected ally in Gamaliel. And by the way, he's not only a famous teacher, he was the teacher of the apostle Paul. It's possible that right now in the life of Paul, Paul is actually under his tutelage, being trained up as a Pharisee. He was a a great and an an unusual man, a a great rabbi, but in a human sense, he was greatly respected, and he basically says, listen, before you kill these men, you need to stop and consider what you will be doing. I have lived a long time, and I've seen a lot of different things, and I've observed that movements like this tend to pass away quickly if God is not in them. That's what he's going to say in a second. And this is, by the way, this is not the way to determine whether or not a movement is really from God. Just because something is popular, just because something seems to have momentum and is growing, does not guarantee it's from God, right? Amen? I mean, a lot of cults, a lot of other religions, like God is, God is not in Islam. God is not in Mormonism. God is not in the Jehovah Witness religion. And those tend to blossom and flourish at all different seasons. But this principle that he adheres to, it actually turns out to be true in this case. And so God uses, in one sense, his flawed theology to actually prove that sometimes it is true. Sometimes things flourish and things move with such momentum because God truly is in it. And he gives two examples. Look, he does this in verse 36. He says, For before these days, Thetis, 
Theodos, excuse me, rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, they joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Truer words about Christianity have never been spoken. If you oppose Christianity, you're actually opposing God Almighty. Somehow this got through to them, and so they listened to his advice, what the text tells us there at the end of 39. They took his advice. And I don't know what was going on in his heart. I don't know if you know, he was sincerely considering the truth claims. Maybe, maybe he was the only one considering the elephant in the room that these guys were once in prison last night and mysteriously got out. Isn't that amazing? They're not even addressing that. Like, I was reading this and being like, how did that just kind of fall off of the agenda? It's because they're not caring about God at all. They don't even care, really, ultimately, if these men are from God. They have their own agenda. And Gamaliel speaks some sense into the situation, and God is using him to preserve their lives. And I think that this is a helpful reminder for us. Listen, as you look at your life and you look at the circumstances of your life, the difficulties, the trials, the pain, the hurts, all of those things, the the confusion and the chaos, it's helpful sometimes when we're through that to look back and see how God was faithfully in his providence working to preserve us, to strengthen us, to provide for us, and to grow us. God is so often at work, isn't he? And, you know, kind of behind the curtains, behind the scenes. No matter how hard it gets, we can find comfort surrendering our lives, our circumstances, and our plans to the real power behind all things. We need to stop so often in our lives trying to control everything and start learning how to rest in the one who's truly in control of everything. It's interesting here that they have this courageous approach and their lives are on the line and God's power intervenes. They get away with their lives, but they don't get away without pain. They teach us that in the face of opposition, we suffer with pure joy. It's your final point. And this is so fascinating. And, and really, it's staggering to the mind. Verse 40 When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they made the biggest mistake they've ever made, they let them go. They bring them in and they flog them, probably gave them 39 lashes each. It's a helpful reminder, listen, and this isn't talked about often enough, I believe, in the church, that sometimes the payment for our obedience and faithfulness to God, the payment from the world is pain and punishment. Excuse me, pain and punishment. And there's a biblical principle that's not often talked about. If you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. It's going to sever some relationships. It's going to provoke people to anger 
not all the time, but enough of the time if you're faithful enough that you'll begin to have second thoughts about what you're doing or maybe how you're doing it because the truth is none of us likes getting hurt, do we? We're wired to assume that if we're getting hit, it's because something's wrong. So whenever I share the gospel and I get hit for it, there's a temptation to either stop saying anything or to change what I'm saying. Evangelist Rico Tice calls this, helpfully, I like this term, the pain line. The pain line. And he says, I know there's a pain line that needs to be crossed if I'm going to tell someone the gospel, but I want to stay on the comfortable side of the pain line. Of course I do, he says. Isn't that inherent in every one of us? We, we, we want to remain comfortable. We don't like getting hurt. And I believe that this is one of the main reasons that we fail to actually evangelize and tell people about Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Most Christians, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they can't help but tell others. They're so just filled with zeal and passion. They're so excited about the, the newfound salvation, the joy and the hope, the forgiveness of sins. They just want to tell everybody and anybody. But eventually what happens is they tell somebody that is offended or doesn't appreciate what they have to say. And all of a sudden they begin to kind of backtrack and the zeal begins to be quenched. Their newfound joy in the Lord is not met with acceptance and gratitude, but with resentment and hostility. Somebody mocks you because you love Jesus Christ. Somebody wounds you deeply. Somebody unfriends you on Facebook. Oh, so sad. <laughs> so we stop doing the thing that is causing the pain. And yet, and yet, listen. Jesus says that this is actually just normal Christianity. In fact, the first time he sends his own disciples out on, on their very first mission, he describes their mission like this, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. I read a story, um, there's a journal article this past week about uh, a, a tiger in a Russian a Russian zoo, and, and they would feed this tire, tiger live prey. You know, a couple times a week, they put some live you know, sheep or goats in, and they put this black goat in. I can't remember the name of the goat, but uh, they put this black goat in, and, and, you know, tigers devour goats. I mean, it's pretty natural, right? But well, all of a sudden, they turn around, and it's been like a day, and this goat is following the tiger around. They become buddies. Seriously. In fact, they, they become so close, over a week, this, this goat is in there and this tiger will not eat the goat. The goat follows around the tiger, it's like his leader. Right? And he, and he fall, in fact, the tiger gave up his own bed so the goat could sleep in his bed. He just sleeps on top of the shelter. It's, it's unbelievable. They're trying to be like, how is this happening? Tigers don't lie down with goats, they eat goats. And yeah, I think so many Christians, you know, they think that we're going out in the world and that you know, we're going to be friends with tigers. We're goats that are going to be friends with tigers. And if somehow, if we're, if we're clever enough, if we're winsome enough, um, if we're funny enough, you know, maybe people won't be offended and, and maybe they shouldn't be offended. They'll just love us and they'll love our Jesus too. And the word of God tells us, listen, that we are sheep going out amongst wolves. And listen, wolves bite sheep. 
This is the expectation in the word of God for followers of Jesus Christ. We walk out, listen, what Jesus is trying to teach is this, we're walking out into a world that is hostile, that is opposing the truth of the gospel, that because of their sin, there, there is a deep rejection and hatred many times of the gospel because it confronts people in their sin, it exposes their sin, it's humiliating to have to say, man, I need a savior. Or, or, or this is the only way and I've got to give up everything to follow this Jesus Christ. We're sheep among wolves, and if you share Christ enough, you'll find that to be true. And if you've never experienced this in your life as a Christian, let me just suggest a couple of thoughts for you that maybe are helpful. If you've never experienced somebody oppressing you or despising or ridiculing or mocking or rejecting you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, it's likely that you're not sharing Christ frequently enough or faithfully enough. Or maybe you've experienced this in your life and either you don't think it's working because you got hit or you don't think it's worth it because you got hit. But we need to understand and recognize that this is an inevitable biblical reality and you will not have the courage to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ until you embrace this truth. If you tell non-Christians about Jesus, you will get hit sometimes. It will be painful. In the Western world, listen, comfort and ease are so often our gods. We just, we love to be on this side of that pain line. We love our comfort. We don't like being pushed out of our comfort zones. In India, at the Delhi Bible Institute, students are being trained to take the message of Jesus to areas where people have never heard it before. They're trained, listen to this, to keep a bag ready packed by the back door so that if people come in the front door to kill them, they can grab their bag and run out the back. It's happening right now. When asked about the possibility of suffering, one staff member at the Delhi Bible Institute replied, of course there will be suffering. What did you expect? The very first graduate of this school was martyred in six weeks. He graduated, he went up into the villages, he preached Jesus Christ, and they took his life. He knew the possibility that pain was real, listen Christian, but he did it anyways. It's time we stop being surprised by this and start being prepared for this. The apostles react to their punishment with Joy, isn't this amazing? And their backs bleeding from the lashes they've received. And it says this, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, or, or you could translate this, full of joy that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This describes not, listen, a brief emotional reaction, but a continuous sense of gladness in their hearts. And the reason for their joy is expressed in this paradoxical statement that they were counted worthy. It was an honor to suffer dishonor. See, the suffering allowed them an opportunity to demonstrate their loyalty to Jesus Christ. And in this moment, as their backs are being torn up and they're walking back bloodied and sore, believe me, it hurt. 
All they can think about is this. Isn't this amazing? God has seen fit to test our loyalty and we have been found faithful. We did not deny our Lord. We stood fast and we took the beating for him for the sake of his name. And we wouldn't compromise. We wouldn't turn our backs and they let us go and guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna go do it again. And this for them not only affirmed their loyalty to Christ, listen, it affirmed that they were a part of Christ. It gave them greater assurance that they were one with Christ. And they believed, right, that the servant is not greater than their master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So they're rejoicing. They're saying, look, we're just like Christ. He's seen fit to make sure we know the suffering he went to so that we can be made more like him. And they're let go and they go out rejoicing. And in verse 42, it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This didn't slow them down. This didn't back them up. This didn't crack them or cripple them. They didn't fade into the pack of mediocre Christianity. They stepped forth with energy and faith that God would bless their faithfulness. They believed, listen, they believed with all of their heart that there was no other hope for salvation. They believed that people would die in their sins and spend an eternity in hell. They believed that Jesus Christ was worthy of honor and praise and glory and adoration. They believed it and they did something about it. This is the call for the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot be silent. We cannot play a Christian game we're called to this kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. And when it gets hard, we do not flee. We lean into the supreme authority of God. We speak out with real courage. We experience his real power. And if we suffer, listen, we suffer with pure joy like our Savior, amen? The question we must constantly ask ourselves is this, do we believe the gospel is true? Do you believe it with all your heart? And will we follow him regardless of the cost? Do we believe above all that he is worthy? If we do, we will do something with it.